0: Seminary, I took an Old Testament class. It's taught by a man named Dr. House, and I've never described anybody before or since in this way, but Dr. House had the gift of being succinct. I listened to him lecture and preach for hours and hours and hours, and I have never once heard a misplaced word. And I think Dr. House wanted to pass that same gift on to the next generation. I think he was tired of hearing long-winded preachers. And so what he would do is, uh, as we went throughout the semester, he would assign us our homework and we worked through every book of the Old Testament. And so he would say, okay, for next class, read Genesis or or read Ezra or, you know, whatever Old Testament book and read it, answer these questions, you know, write the essay. And the very last part of your assignment is you are going to write a one-sentence summary of that book. So you're going to write a one-sentence summary of Genesis or Nehemiah or whatever book we were studying. I was trying to see, did you read all the material? Could you comprehend it broadly? And then could could you condense it down and say it back to me in one sentence? Now, fortunately, I don't have to do a one-sentence summary of the entire book of Exodus. Mark will be preaching from Exodus next week with the Ten Commandments. But if I were going to give a one sentence summary for the first half of Exodus, the first 15 chapters, it would be this. The first first half of Exodus is about God's glory in salvation through judgment. Six words God's glory in salvation through judgment. If you're paying attention, when Mark was reading our text, you may have noticed that there is a refrain. There is a thought and a theme that is repeated over and over and over again throughout this passage. And anytime God speaks, we want to listen. But when God starts repeating himself, that's when we really need to perk up. God says in verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. And all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Again in verse 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh. And all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And for the last time in verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. If this passage is about anything, it is about God getting his glory. You can take that to the bank. God will get his glory, and he is going to get it in two ways. One, he is going to get his glory through delivering his people. He is going to save his people and show them grace and kindness and mercy. And he is going to get glory from that grace. The other way that God will get glory is through destroying those who oppose him and by pouring out his wrath and his judgment. Those are the two avenues by which God will be glorified. And I hope that by the time that we are done studying this passage, we will see and understand and even rejoice in both of those. So the story starts out, and God has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. God had promised that uh, back, we saw last week, in the promise to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years, and this is it. So God has led them out of slavery in Egypt, and they are on the run. And so they're following the, the fire and the cloud, they're going this way and that way, and eventually God tells them, go up and encamp next to the Red Sea. And in verse 2, God tells them something very interesting. He's led them all around. He leads them up to the Red Sea. And he says, you shall encamp facing the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, if I were on the run from the greatest military power in the world, and God had led me to an immovable object, something that I cannot get through, I'm going to face that way. I'm going to be worried about the army that is bearing down on me. Okay, I'm going to be looking. Okay, maybe can I see them coming over the horizon? Can I check out their formation? Is there a way that I can attack? Or maybe there's a weakness in their formation. Is there a way that I can escape off to the side? God says, don't worry about them. Turn this way and look at this thing that is impossible to pass. Look at how trapped you are. You can't walk through it. You can't swim through it. You can't go around it. An army is coming behind you to kill you, and I want you to look this way so that the only thing that you hear is the thundering of the ground when the horses and the chariots and the thousands of soldiers are bearing down on your neck. So God is saying, take a long, hard look at how impossible your situation is. You are trapped. You are hopeless. And I want you to see that. God wanted to bring the Israelites to the end of themselves. He wanted them to get rid of all of their personal and earthly hope. He wanted them to get rid of the notion that they could in any way save themselves. He wanted to bring them to a point where the only way they would be able to look back on this was to say, we did nothing and salvation belongs to the Lord. He did it. Have you ever been in one of those situations like the Israelites are in right now? You've got an army bearing down on you on this side and an ocean that you can't get through on this side and and you've got nowhere to go. You lost your job and you don't know how you're going to keep a roof over your head and feed your family. Marriage is on the rocks. You've made it through 20 years but you you don't see how you're going to make it to 21. You've had to rush a kid to the hospital and even the doctors are coming out looking scared. You've got nothing. You are totally weak. And as horrible as those things are in and of themselves, one thing that those situations do is they strip you of your own sense of self-sufficiency. They show you how weak and needy and helpless you are on your own. It's like what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 9 where God says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is is made perfect in weakness. God is going to receive his glory when we are stripped of all forms of self-sufficiency and the only thing that we can say is, God, you're all I've got. I've got nothing. I have to rely completely on you. Will you come through for me? So God purposely backs his people into a corner He wants them to see how desperate they are and how reliant they are on him. And so Pharaoh looks at this and he realizes the mistake in the military strategy that God and the Israelites have made. And uh, Pharaoh thinks, yeah, it was probably a bad idea to let our free slave labor go, so let's go get them back. Okay, so I'm going to send my best 600 chariots. I'm going to send every other chariot I can muster up. Any man or boy who can carry a sword and a shield, go get them. And the Israelites do what they always do. They start complaining. They look to Moses and they say, this is your fault. You let us out here. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that we had to come out to the wilderness to rot and to die? It would have been better to be a slave in Egypt than to die here in the wilderness. Listen to what Moses says to them in verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. I love that last line. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 12, where he said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you've got an anxious, worried, nervous heart, you're going to have anxious, nervous, and worried words. But, But if you have a calm and peaceful heart, if you know that God is the one who is fighting for you, If you know that God is on your side and that all of it doesn't rest on your shoulders, if God is the one who's going to come through for you, you can stand perfectly still. You don't have to utter a single word because God is in control. Reminds me of uh, the Spartan army, actually, in ancient Greece. You know, whenever I think of two armies coming together to do battle, I think of one of those uh, Braveheart armies scenes, you know, with the wide-angle lens where the armies rush together and they have that, that big collision in the middle of the battlefield. Spartans didn't do that. They didn't rush into battle. They stood in line. They stood in formation. Spear in their right hand, shield on their left. Their shield covered their brother on their left. And the enemy would attack and charge them and start running across the field, yelling and screaming, getting all of their adrenaline going. And even though the enemy was the one that was attacking, after the battle, the Spartans loved to talk about that moment right before their enemies reached them. Because even though the enemy was the one that was attacking, right before they met the Spartan line, the Spartans would see terror light up in their enemy's eyes. They got scared of how calm the Spartans were in that moment they trusted in their formation they trusted in their training they trusted in their weapons and to the brother to their right and to their left and so they calmly stood and they waited for the battle the battle was over before it even started that's the kind of peace and calm that God is calling us to you don't have to pick up a sword you don't have to rush into battle you can have a calm heart and you can stand still and you don't have to utter a word Because God himself will fight for you. So the Egyptians are drawing closer and closer. They are charging in on the Israelites. And pick up with me in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, at this point, I'm aware that some of you may have heard different accounts of what actually happened here at the crossing of the Red Sea. It's been pretty in vogue over the last several centuries for liberal theologians to try and rework this passage to be less miraculous than it actually reads. And so they'll say something like, well, it, there's a textual error, so it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea, like the reeds of papyrus. So it wasn't really an ocean or a sea, it was more like a swamp or a pond or a small lake. And just kind of happened to be low tide at that hour and some wind blew, but really everybody passed through in about six inches of water. It came up to about your ankle or to your knees. So it wasn't like an s- actual splitting of the sea, it was just some strong wind. Reminds me of this preaching story I guess it's the equivalent of an old wives tale but an old preacher's tale I don't really know what that would be I don't know if it's historically true but it'll get my point across The story goes there was this little girl in Sunday school one week and they were studying our passage for this morning the crossing of the Red Sea and they read through the story and the little girl said wow this is amazing praise God he delivered his people through on dry land what, what five minutes ago was the bottom of the ocean, now it is bone dry, and God delivered his people through that. So then her teacher pipes up and said, well, actually, it wasn't, you know, an ocean, it was just a little pond, and there was some wind blowing, and, and actually, they just walked through in about six inches of water. So the little girl said, really? That's amazing, praise God. He just drowned the entire Egyptian army in six inches of water. Liberal theologians will do their best to remove any sort of divinity or transcendence or miraculous from the Bible to the point where a bunch of ragtag on the run former slaves trying to get toddlers through an ocean can make it through but the marines of that time will die in six inches of water. (laughs) Liberal theology is so boring. (laughs) Give me a God who is bigger than that. Give me a God who is more powerful than that. Give me a God who controls the winds and the waves and can deliver his people through anything. Give me that kind of God. That's the kind of God that I can worship. So in what is genuinely a miracle, God delivers his people from the Egyptians. And so far, it's been easy to focus on the deliverance that God works for his people. It is easy to focus on the God's glory in salvation Part of this passage but the inescapable reality is that God worked that deliverance through the judgment and destruction of the Egyptians so in a minute we're going to focus on that through judgment that last piece but before we do we need to make sure that we are crystal clear on the first part on the God's glory Again, that's the refrain of this passage. I will get glory. I will get glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh. In fact, if you wanted to try and write a whole summary, a one-sentence summary of the entire Bible, God will get his glory is a great start. In Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. It is mine you were with us as we studied the book of John looked at Jesus' priestly prayer the night before he died Jesus prayed for his own glory he said father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed throughout the bible God's chief concern is for his own glory he is jealous for his own glory he is self-centered about everything for his own glory And that might sound strange to us. You know, we're taught it's bad to be so self-centered. You know, love doesn't seek its own, right? Nobody likes to be around the person that's all about me, 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 me. They're so annoying. So if it's bad for us to be so self-centered, then why is it right for God to be so self-centered and concerned for his own glory? Here's why. Because if God were to give glory to anything other than himself, then he would be giving glory to something that is not deserving of it. He would be giving glory to a lesser being than himself, which would be for God to commit idolatry. One pastor put it this way, I've always found it really helpful. He says, when we exalt ourselves... We lure people away from the one thing that can satisfy their souls, which is the infinite beauty of God. But unlike our self-exaltation, God's self-exaltation draws our attention to what gives us the greatest and longest joy, namely God himself. Therefore, when God exalts himself, he is magnifying the one thing that can satisfy our souls, him. Here it is. Therefore... God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most proper and loving act. Because God is the only one who is worthy of praise and worship and glory. It is good and it is right for everything that he does to be centered on his own glory. Okay, so we need to make sure that we're clear on that. We needed that theological building block in place before we go on to reading about God executing his justice. We need to be firmly committed to God's self-centeredness for his own glory in the goodness and the rightness of that if we are going to read and respond rightly to God's justice. Story ends in verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So to say that God's justice was severe would be an understatement. There are thousands of Egyptian corpses washing up on the seashore. In one night, God made the entire nation of Egypt a nation of widows. And why did God do it? All so that he could get his glory. So that Egypt would know that the God of the Israelites, he is the true God. If you went back to Exodus 9, you would hear God say this to Pharaoh. God said, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed to all the earth. A.k.a. God said, I have raised you up for the sole purpose of obliterating you. I have raised you up for the sole purpose of obliterating you publicly. You are going to be used as a display of my judgment. And when the world sees me overpowering you, they will give me my glory. That's how it ends. In verse 30. It's when the Israelites see the dead Egyptians washing up on the seashore. That is when they saw the mighty power of God. That is when they began to fear and when they believed. It was God's justice made public that led them to worship. God's sole purpose in wiping out the Egyptians was so that it would be seen. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about God publicly enacting his justice as a reason for your worship of him? It's a bit of an unsettling thought. But consider this. I think that the more that we meditate on God's justice, the more precious God will be to us the more that we consider God's wrath, justice, and severity, the more that we will realize that he is deserving of our praise. Just just consider the alternative. What if you were one of the soldiers in 1945 who was going to liberate a concentration camp, you walked up to Auschwitz or Dachau, and you saw the most organized and systematic mass murder of any people group in the history of the world? You saw the atrocities that mankind can commit against one another. You saw all of that evil. And God said, yeah, millions of my own image bearers have been wiped off the face of the planet, but I'm just such a God of love. I'm, I'm just going to let this slide. How many of you are familiar with the name Larry Nasser? He was the head coach of the US, gymnastics, uh, U.S. Olympic gymnastics team and the coach of the gymnastics teams at Michigan State. It turns out that for decades he has been sexually abusing teenage girl athletes who had come through his program. Imagine that was one of your kids. Imagine if somebody laid a hand on one of your own children. What if God said, this is wrong but those little girls really aren't worth that much. That's not loving. That is not a God who is just, and that is not a God that I can worship. I think the older that I've gotten, and the more of the evil and the sin and the injustice that I have seen in the world, the more precious God's justice is to me. And I don't want to have an arrogant attitude. I don't want to gleefully or inappropriately look forward to God's judgment day but I find myself longing for the day when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream and I long for the day when God will exact his justice on the millions and millions of people who have opposed him and as overwhelming and terrifying as God's justice will be in that day I guarantee you that we all will look at it and we will say praise God This is right. And God, you are glorious in this. So the Exodus plays a very prominent role in all of the Bible. This is actually the defining moment of the Old Testament. If you were to ask an Israelite centuries after this to describe their relationship with God, they would point back to this moment and say, This is where God delivered us. This is where God saved us. Exodus is the most referenced event in the Bible. And different biblical authors will look back on this event and interpret it and apply it in different ways. And I personally love how Isaiah applies it in Isaiah 51. Isaiah says, Was it not the Lord who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So he looked back at the Exodus, and then he goes on to say, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall attain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So so Isaiah looks back to this Exodus. And then he interprets that and he says, One day... God's redeemed are going to come into Zion. They will flow into Zion and there will be singing and there will be joy on their heads and sighing and weeping will be done away with forever. According to Isaiah, this original exodus prefigures a second exodus. And so we are in our framework series showing how all the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. So let's have a little fun here. In Luke 9... On the Mount of Transfiguration, we catch a glimpse of Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah. And he was talking with them, he says, about his departure. The Greek word used there for departure is exodus. Jesus is talking with them about the exodus that he is about to lead. Moses led an exodus out of slavery in Egypt, and Jesus is about to lead an exodus out of slavery to sin. In the Old Testament, God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. Remember when Jesus was a baby? King Herod was trying to wipe out all the little boys in Israel. Where did Jesus and his family flee to? went to Egypt. That's why in Matthew 2, God can say, Out of Egypt, I call my son. In the 10th plague, God took the life of the firstborn son of every Egyptian. In the Gospels, It is actually God himself who is offering his firstborn son to bear our judgment. During the plagues, the only way for God's judgment to pass over a household was for the blood of an innocent animal to be shed and for that blood to be smeared over the doorpost of each house. Judgment passed over because of the innocent sacrifice of another. Sound familiar? In Exodus 16, just two chapters later, manna will fall from heaven. Bread will fall from heaven and it will sustain the Israelites. But they're going to have to go out day after day after day to pick up their daily meal. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come from heaven and everyone who eats of me will never go hungry again. Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. Jesus was sent out into the desert for 40 days. Israel was tempted and tried, and they disobeyed God. Satan was tempted and tried, or Jesus was tempted and tried by Satan, and he succeeded. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. Moses led his people through water. And for some, those waters were waters of salvation, and for some, those waters were waters of judgment. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul will make this connection for us. Paul will say that just like the Israelites were baptized into Moses, he'll say that as Christians, we are baptized into Christ. Moses led his people through the waters of judgment to the other side. Likewise, all those who are in Christ will pass through the waters of death, and we will reach the other side safely. This is what what baptism represents. Baptism is a recreation of, it's a mini exodus. It is representing a death to life experience. In baptism, we're saying you deserve to join the Egyptians. You deserve to have the waters of God's wrath come over you and consume you. In fact, the pastor who baptized me, he told me to imagine it this way. He said, "When I dunk you under the water, imagine if I held you under there. Imagine if this was your lot." for all of eternity. In fact, I'm going to hold you under for just a few seconds too long because I want you to freak out. I want you to think that you are drowning, think that you are going to die. I want you to be desperate for air so that when I pull you up, that first gasp of air, that first gasp of life, that is going to be all from God and you are not going to be able to help but praise him because you deserve to be down there. But he has reached down into your sin and he has pulled you up and brought you to life. Brothers and sisters, I hope that by now we can see that the exodus is simply a prefiguring of the salvation offered to us in Jesus. At the cross is where God will ultimately say and ultimately show, I will get my glory in salvation through judgment. I am going to pour out my wrath on my son. And if you are in Jesus, if you are in Christ, then you are going to pass through my judgmental waters and you are going to arrive safely to the other side. You are going to be able to look death in the face and mock it. Because your, your sin has been paid for. But if you are not in Christ, if your uh, sin is not dealt with at the cross, it will be dealt with on the last day. So, like we do every week, we just want to end by saying, look to Christ. You stand condemned before a holy, eternal, and righteous God, and he has offered a pathway for salvation. It is through judgment. It is through the judgment of his son. So look to Jesus. Look to him by faith. Repent and believe, and he can deliver you safely through to the other side. Towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord, you are mighty, you are powerful, you are our defender, you are our warrior, our deliverer, our savior. So we simply get down on our knees and we bask in who you are. God, we deserve your wrath and your judgment. In your grace, you have condescended and reached down and brought us to life. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would soften hearts and open eyes to see Jesus for who he is. We ask that you would make resurrection happen in this room. Would you call us from death into life? Lord, we love you and we trust you.